Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, talk. text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Good day wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is our technical assistant, cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. And on the phone from who knows where, I believe, Denver, my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, traveling, but still the... uh, Live from the Denver International Airport. (laughs) Live from the Denver International Airport. Welcome, Cliff. Yeah, it's good to be here. Today's show is brought to us by Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease.com. That's D-R-I-E-A-Z.com. We'd also like to thank our original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Today's guests are Mark DeLau of DeLau & Associates and Scott Brown of Housemasters. Before we get started, we'd like to quickly remind listeners how to contact the show. We are live every Friday at noon, and you can have an email reminder sent to you. Just send us an email at info at iaqtraining.com with authorized notification in the subject line, and we will send you a reminder on a weekly basis. To call in live, you have to go to the www.talkshoe.com website, sign up for your 10-digit PIN number. We suggest a phone number that's easy to remember, and then dial 724-444-7444. Four, four, four. The show's PIN number is 1547. All right. Uh, this, or you can uh, also text message us if you sign up at the TalkShoe website as well. Our first guest today is Mark DeLau from DeLau & Associates. Uh, he is the CEO of DeLau & Associates and has over 25 years of experience in the environmental health and safety consulting and training fields. He is also a board member of the Indoor Air Quality Association, recently elected as the new vice president of IAQA. And Mark also served on an interesting group, uh, the Asbestos Strategies Group, which was a congressional blue ribbon commission back in 2003 on asbestos and issues with respect to asbestos. We would like to talk to him a little bit more about that. Mark, are you on the line? Hello, Mark. Yes, thanks, Joe. Great. Welcome, Mark. All right. We've got all the bugs worked out. We've got Cliff Zlotnick on the other line. Cliff, you still with us? Yes, I'm still here, Joe. Excellent. All right, Mark. Well, welcome, and congratulations on your uh, election as vice president of IAQA. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have some, as some of the members put it to me, new blood uh, on the executive board, and uh, we're very pleased to have you on the show today. I, I had a question on the um, the commission that you served on, Mark. Um, I, I wasn't familiar with that, even though I've been 
pretty involved with asbestos and lead and training. What exactly was the the uh, mission of the commission that you served on? Well, uh, Joe, it was uh, back in May 2003 is when we uh, initially convened, or actually that would be uh, when we got our report uh, information gathered. That had been the end of it. Um, it was an EPA initiative uh, initially in, in response to the happenings in Libby, Montana, associated with the vermiculite mines out there. Um, uh, a congressperson uh, was getting questioned by his constituents from the, the Montana area, and uh, in, in search of answers, he went to the EPA, the associate director of the EPA, and said, uh, what do you know about what's going on in Libby, Montana? Uh, apparently, when she answered, she isn't uh, exactly sure. Uh, he said, well, what else don't you know? <laughs> and uh, thus was the birth of this blue ribbon uh, panel called the Asbestos Strategies Group. Essentially, we had about 35 uh, private uh, individuals in the asbestos area, from legal to medical to consultants and contractors, and uh, they even had some people there that are from the vermiculite uh, mining industry. And we had uh, some panel discussions, and our uh, purpose was to identify <clears throat> what uh, shortcomings do the current laws, rules, and regulations concerning asbestos in this country uh, identify what shortcomings there are, and then compile a report to Congress uh, that the EPA might utilize to uh, enhance, change, or otherwise institute new regulations concerning Mark, asbestos. Why, can you tell the listeners why vermiculite is important and where it was used? Well, yeah, indeed, and that, that really has become a, a very big issue with the EPA. Uh, vermiculite is used in all types of products, uh, the most disconcerting of which was it was very widely used in homes for attic insulation and also in the, the wall cavities. Uh, vermiculite itself is not a dangerous substance, but where, mineralogically speaking, where you find vermiculite, you will find an asbestiform called tremolite. And tremolite is a cr not added to the vermiculite for any reason. It was a cross-contaminant. And uh, therefore, there's a substantial exposure potential for any homeowner that has this, uh, this insulation in their attic or in their wall spaces. Thank you. So I... I uh assume that uh, we will be having, actually, it's ironic, a Home Inspector of the Year on a little bit later in the program, Scott Brown, and I'm curious to find out how often he finds vermiculite in, in this part of the country, and um, I'm also curious from your end, Mark, is it pretty common? up? In, I know you're in Michigan there. Is mm -hmm. it pretty common? Oh, yeah, absolutely, and unfortunately, I'm, I am one of the homeowners that had that. I have a house that sits on Lake Michigan in South Haven, Michigan. It uh, was built in 1904, and it was completely loaded with uh, the vermiculite uh, attic and, and, again, wall cavity insulation. What did you do with it? Did you remove it, or has yes. it still there? Okay, you had it all removed. Yeah, well, I, uh, we did an extensive renovation of the house, and we had to go through some very painstaking and very expensive process of removing it. Um, I can tell you that it gets the actual tremolite dust, which is very fine, uh, settles out of the vermiculite and gets into the, quote, nooks and crannies of a house, 
and it's very, very difficult to get it uh, uh, completely abated. In fact, I would say you, it was virtually impossible. And then what you do is you simply try to lock it down in place, any residual that might be left, do extensive air monitoring to determine it, did you do good enough or not. And, and of course, with my company's uh, experience, that, that was a much easier process. But i got to tell you, it really opened up my eyes because uh, if, if I didn't have the experience and the ability to have do my own air monitoring and, and to have the assurances that I was able to afford myself just because of my technical background, this, this would be a very emotionally trying thing to, to face as a homeowner. How did they get it out of the walls and, and get it out of the attic? They vacuum it or they remove it by hand in a big suction machine or... Yeah, we did use a. They, uh, I hired a company that did a vac loader, and it's all, of course, HEPA vac uh, filters on it. You know, that's a huge truck, and uh, that made short work, very short work, out of doing it in the attics. Uh, as far as the wall insulation, it's a much different critter, and uh, really, the only reasonable way to get it out was, in fact, to take the drywall off and you start at the bottom. And it'll just, uh, it's like opening up a chute in a grain elevator. Uh, the stuff will just come flowing out. And, of course, once again, under containment, you, you vacuum out that stuff. But obviously, that's a pretty destructive means to, uh, to remove it. Sounds like it was quite a project. And uh, fortunately, you're in a position where you have the expertise to do the consulting side of it. Did you bring in a contractor for that, Mark, or did you do some of the re removal yourself? The vast majority of it was a contractor, uh, uh, an abatement contractor. It had a vac truck. Um, I would like to believe that I got a, quote, good deal on it. Uh, <laughs> in spite of that, uh, uh, whether I, uh, that speculation, whether it's a good deal or not, I did spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, of my money doing to, to have that part of the service done. Now, certainly, as we got into other areas of the house, uh, the, you know, small areas, the uh, you know, remaining ca wall cavities. Uh, I did actually uh, uh, remove some of that myself. Um, you know, using HEPA vacuums and so on. So you had a high efficiency vacuum that uh, captured the very fine particles and uh, cleaned a lot of it up yourself. Now that that brings up another interesting question, which um, is that you know you're. I, I am assuming you are not a licensed asbestos contractor in Michigan, but I could be wrong. Does it not require that you bring in a licensed person? And I don't want to, uh, you know, have the local DEP knocking on your door or anything <laughs> like that, Mark. But no. because you're in a residential setting, were you able to do that because you were in a residential facility? No, a excellent point, Joe. Um, actually, a homeowner can do whatever they want. <clears throat> the... Uh, the abatement contractor that sucked the insulation with their vac loader out of the uh, the attic uh, was licensed. They do they did provide for notification to the state and followed all the guidelines. If I were to have removed that insulation out of the attic, quite frankly, the way the law reads, and this is pretty much across the country, I could have shoveled it out with a snow shovel, put it in garbage bags, and set it on the street, and that would have been legal. Um, homeowners are simply not regulated. But what about contractors that go into the home and do, let's say there was just somebody coming in to renovate your home for you and they ran across this, didn't know what it was, started to remove it. What happens then? Joe, you're hitting the nail right on the head. And uh, 
that was one of the primary issues that our asbestos strategies group identified. And in, um, in, in November of 2005, the EPA started a new initiative uh, entitled the Asbestos Project Plan. I would strongly encourage any listeners to log on to the um, EPA's website. I mean, just do a Google search for EPA asbestos, and you'll get right to a, a very, very good site with the EPA, and you can find their asbestos project plan there. And one of the things, uh, what they did is essentially uh, in this asbestos project plan, the EPA took a, a, a number of our recommendations from our uh, asbestos strategies report from May of 2003 and started putting them to work, or started working on them. And one of the primary things they're doing is trying to educate exactly the people you just uh, mentioned. They're these contractors that are going in and, and running anything from telephone wire, HVAC contractors, uh, plumbers that can run into this material and, and subsequently expo overexpose their employees and possibly even the homeowner uh, by exacerbating the, the problem. Uh, and we're trying to get the word out. And education is one of the primary things that our group identified and subsequently, this EPA's uh, asbestos project plan is trying to emphasize is getting the, uh, the word out that not only is that vermiculite insulation out there, uh, but the fact that asbestos-containing building materials are not banned in the United States. Uh, the ban was remanded, so you can still buy asbestos-containing building materials out there. Now, for our listeners, that's all asbestos, Mark, or do we have certain areas where it has been banned? Well, there are certain areas that have been banned, um, and certainly any new uses and certain types of thermal insulation, uh, the ban still stayed in place, and, but it's not just the, the real obscure. I mean, you, there's vinyl asbestos floor tile being imported into this country by the hundreds of thousands of tons, um, asbestos caulkings. Uh, uh, various types of roofing materials, asbestos additives to concrete uh, so that you can make the, the, the uh, material called transite, which is Portland cement mixed with asbestos, um, asbestos brakes and clutches, uh, asbestos gasketing materials. All of these are still available uh, for purchase and use in this country. And unfortunately, um, most people think that asbestos is long gone and is illegal and is no longer used, so we're under operating under this false sense of security. You know, I've had this is a, a catch twenty two situation. Let's let's change uh, gears just a little bit. And um, you and I both have done some. I don't know if you personally do training for mold remediators, but um, I have, and I'm sure I know your people do. And one of the catch-22s that we run into is we get a lot of people who are from the industry Cliff is much more familiar with than I am, the water damage and uh, fire damage restoration folks. They have, you know, when we talk to them about asbestos-containing materials and renovation, they feel like they're in a catch-22. On the one hand, the government guidelines say that we should dry out buildings as quickly as possible <laughs> to avoid mold. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we have to do some kind of uh, investigation inspection prior to disturbing these materials. What, what do we tell people? Well, 
Indeed, that's a that is a, a, a catch twenty two, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, with respect to anytime you're evading asbestos-containing building materials, the principal engineering control that is should be employed is keeping the material wet so that it does not become airborne. It is when asbestos becomes airborne, as you well know, is when the exposure potential, the inhalation of the asbestos fibers, is most prevalent. And obviously, if you have a building, um, you know, that's got insulation that's thoroughly wet, uh, that's a a very low risk type of situation. If you dry it out, it, it goes exactly the opposite because these materials, after they've been soaked with water, once they dry out, typically the matrix that bound them together has been, uh, uh, the integrity of it has been uh, destroyed and the exposure potential goes up incrementally. So indeed, what does a mold abater do? Um, should they remove these materials while they're wet? Well. That's a legal question. Uh, yeah, they should if they're a licensed asbestos abatement contractor. Um, and that's a good time to do it, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, to just simply dry it out, again, the, the material is going to have to be removed sooner or later. Now, in terms of drying it out, I think what's important is it just doesn't dry by itself. Uh, restoration contractors need to use dehumidification and sure. they need to use air movement. And yeah. air movement is significant, and just you know they have to be very, very careful with what they do to maintain containment and to uh, prevent this hazardous material from escaping. Well, it's, it's, legal like putting, uh, it's like putting an oxygen-enriched fan on a fire, then saying, "Let's put it out." Right, <laughs> absolutely. And then they're excluded, coverage-wise, for this. Yes, they're all going to have a pollution and asbestos exclusion. So it's a very, it's a big challenge. It's a very yes, big I challenge. would agree. And uh, I I try to encourage people who are involved in the water damage restoration and mold remediation industry to number one ask the building owner you know are they aware of any asbestos containing materials have they had a survey done by a group like Marks and secondly to make sure that they are networked in with people like. Mark and his company so that uh, they could bring them in and quickly find out whether or not they're going to disturb any asbestos-containing materials as a part of the water damage restoration. They don't like hearing that, Mark, but it's, you know, if you want to stay within the regulations, my understanding is that's what you have to do. That's correct. They also should probably know a local lab that they could take a suspicious material to for uh, an evaluation as well. Yeah, indeed, and uh, our company uh, also does uh, asbestos bulk determination, and, and we have uh, often have uh, people bringing samples in under these very circumstances. That is not uncommon at all. That is interesting, and that is a very difficult situation for the water-damaged people out there. I know, especially in, in Florida, when you have a hurricane come through, and then you've got uh, the roof off, and you're trying to tarp it in and dry things up as quickly as you can, um, they really need to have the right network in place to ensure that they're not in violation of any federal, state, or local regulations is my understanding, Mark. That's the way it in, would work. Indeed. And also, Joe, it's important for uh, these water restoration contractors to understand, as as is true with uh, uh, when you previously mentioned uh, uh, other contractors that might go into a house under any circumstances just to do normal renovation activities or even, for that matter, 
cable TV or phone wire installation, and that is an asbestos awareness training. Uh, all of these disciplines, and again, especially these mold remediation folks, need to have at least a, the two-hour mold awareness training, or strike that asbestos awareness training, uh, due to the fact that it is reasonable for them to encounter these materials in their everyday job. Well, before we go, we will also ask that you give us some contact information so that if people have further questions that we could do, I would assume, another hour on that alone. But I've got a list of other questions here for you, Mark. Sure. Uh, the, the most, I guess, um, important one at the top of my list was as, the new vice, as a new vice president, and there are a couple at the Indoor Air Quality Association, what are your goals? Uh, what, what would you like to see the association doing that it's not doing now? Well, um, certainly the the association, uh, since we've gone through our, our consolidation with the IESO and the American Indoor Air Quality Council, um, I think that the, the recent news we got at our conference in Nashville last week that the IESO has finally got ANSI approval to start putting together standards, I think that's going to be a real important new uh, task that our association at large needs to undertake. Um, I think that there's some other just kind of like housekeeping things that I would I would like to see the association take on as far as at the uh, even the board level is uh, uh, getting more folks uh, in, in the at the membership level involved with the association and its committee work. Uh, that's something that uh, the the president Bob Baker has asked me to to start gathering information on and, and reviewing and seeing if there might be a, a better way to get members involved. And some initial shot thoughts there, uh, Joe, is the uh, the chapter network that we have, and uh, that was originally part of the uh, American Indoor Air Quality uh, uh, Council. Um, they they had a chapter uh, organization that is now part of the IEQA. It's a very strong uh, effort out there, and I think that through that, members, the members of those local uh, chapters, uh, we could solicit a lot of uh, very intelligent people from all types of disciplines to participate uh, on our committees uh, to further the industry. Speaking of people participating, I think we have someone trying to call in. Julian, is there a Julian? Are you on the line, Julian? Did you have a question for Mark? No, not right now. I'm just listening in right now. Well, we really like in. to welcome you to the show, and uh, if you do have one, just uh, text message in to um, Zach, our, our technical guru here, and we'll we'll certainly get that on for you. And thanks for joining us, Julian. Where's he from? Not a problem. Well, where are you from, Julian? I'm sorry. I'm from uh, up in Fort McMurray, Alberta, Canada. Oh, interesting. Up in the Fort McMurray area. They don't. That's uh, the the Canadian. We're talking about interesting. We're talking about asbestos earlier because we're still mining uh, asbestos up in Canada. I don't know if if you're very familiar with that or not, Julian. Not mining asbestos, oil sands. I know that. Ah, Everyone well, knows that. Up in your area, okay. Well, just text us if you have a question. And once again, thanks for joining. Not okay. a problem. Very good. Uh, well, let's move on here, Mark. I've got a list of others that. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you that the chapter thing is just a, a tremendous opportunity. We've really inherited a very nice program from the council, and I, I'm sure we'll do a lot with it. 
I guess the next question we had was really I'd, I'd like to lead into your position on the um, Government Affairs Committee. Mark is the chairman of the IAQA Government and Affairs Committee, and uh, we, we don't want to, um, let's see how we, we don't want to get any secret information or anything like that, Mark, but can you update our listeners on some of the pending legislation out there and maybe what's uh, publicly available and how they can get more information on it? No, certainly. Um, uh, one of the things I'd like to, to point out with regards to my work on that uh, committee is uh, we are in the process of putting together policy statements, uh, IAQA policy statements, uh, on various uh, legislative efforts that are taking place throughout the country. Um, those are going to be posted uh, on our website uh, at the IAQA uh, very soon. I hopefully, uh, within the first quarter of 2007, I hope to have those done, um, which any member of the IAQA then will be able to log on and take a look at what is the policy position on any given issue. Uh, some of the current ones that we're looking at right now is uh, uh, the uh, Florida legislation has uh, recently been uh, gained, uh, regained life um, and uh, apparently is being looked at again for 2007. It's very similar to a lot of the, the legislations that we're seeing or legislative efforts we're seeing around the country, and that is it's trying to require certain backgrounds, education, and experience for folks that are involved in the mold assessment uh, business and separately the mold remediation business. It has provisions that call for uh, those two not being uh, owned by the same company as, uh, as it is viewed as a conflict of interest. It establishes you know, certain insurance minimums that they must have and and various licensing by the state and so on. And that's just kind of a broad brush of what the, 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 the legislation really entails. This is similar to what has uh, been proposed and then was vetoed the first time by the governor and then dropped by the Senate the second time, and maybe the third time will be the charm. We have, uh, I'm on the board with Mark at IAQA, and we, you know, we have a wide range of membership so it's kind of difficult to take a stance one way or the other and so we have to be very careful about that but uh, I'm just curious about your your thoughts on legislation it, it seems like it's coming about state by state on mold remediation do you think that's a good trend I mean your personal opinion I'm not looking for your opinion well, as a member yeah, of my board indeed uh, I, I think that uh, you always have to be cautious, no matter what your involvement is uh, uh, with regards to do I want more legislation or not. I think that there needs to have, I think that a general statement, that we need to have some type of uh, guidance out there as to what qualifications a person, person should have when we're handling materials and uh, substances that uh, could be uh, dangerous to human health and safety. I, I certainly think there should be some type of governance there. Uh, looking for that type of legislative governance from uh, the federal government, I think, is not going to happen, uh, not anytime soon, uh, at, with respect to mold. Uh, with respect to the state, at the state level, well, as you well know, a number of states have taken this up, 
It's been very hotly debated. Texas has passed some legislation in Louisiana um, that is still along the same lines as we talked about uh, in Florida. I just don't see that being a real strong trend. You know, we have one being bantered about right now in the state of Wisconsin. Um, but I just, uh, my personal opinion is I don't think it's going to be real easy to get that type of legislation passed. Uh, that could all change in two days uh, or, or next week or when the, when the, uh, we start voting at uh, these midterm elections. Uh, you know, if you have a lot more Democrats get in, maybe that'll happen. I don't know. It's, uh, but right now during election time, uh, it's not very likely. What other states are bantering this about and uh, at least considering some type of legislation? Well, outside of the ones we've just mentioned, there's there's really oh I'm sorry Maine also has some uh, legislation that's being proposed. Um, there might be a, a, another eight or ten states that have something going, but it really hasn't gotten onto the radar screen as a real serious effort as of yet. Um, and again, these are things that we're hoping to post on the uh, IAQA's website uh, so that any member of the IAQA would be able to look at a glance and see what is going on throughout the country. So these bills are tracked on a members-only section of the website? That is correct. And so members can go in, find out if their state is uh, contemplating any kind of regulations that may affect their their uh, you know their livelihood, actually. And uh, so it's important that they keep up on these things. Absolutely. Absolutely true. Okay. Well, Mark, uh, we have a couple of other questions here. Uh, one was that uh, the uh, lead-based paint issue. Um, I, I run into the same questions on lead-based paint as we do with respect to asbestos when people are doing water damage restoration, mold remediation, etc. Um, what about the lead-based paint regulations? Are they as stringent as the asbestos regulations? How do you recommend contractors handle the lead-based paint issue when they're doing water damage or mold remediation? Again, first and foremost is going to be the, the awareness training that the employer should provide for any of the contractors that are going into structures where these materials could be disrupted or, or encountered. Um, so, and that absolutely includes the, the mold remediation folks. And there is exposure potential, and when all else fails, you have uh, you know OSHA and the general industry standards, and um, you have to abide by and the construction standards that that are all governing uh, with respect to exposure to any employee. Um, and it all starts with training, as you well know. So awareness training would be the first step. Uh, yes. Get the uh, owners of the company at a minimum out there and learn something about it, and then follow up by training the employees. Absolutely. And you know, Joe, that's the that's the number one citation out there is improper or un um, or no training or improperly documented training or under OSHA. Yes, sir. And OSHA has you know the the thing that I've noticed anyway is that OSHA has really come a long way in changing from a, a, a group that was focusing on fining people and enforcement, and they've really got a lot of great information on their site that assists employers with these training issues. I don't know. Absolutely. If, do they have something specific for lead-based paint, are you aware? Or? Yeah, yeah, they do. 
and you'll even find uh, any more uh, that most state uh, governments uh, will even have uh, additional information if there's a state OSHA, if you will, which uh, uh, most states do. Uh, some strictly go by the federal and uh, defer that to the federal government or federal OSHA, uh, but most states have their own uh, essentially OSHA department, and they can be very, very helpful. The websites that we've seen, because uh, we do work all over the country, uh, have just been extraordinary. Well, thank you, Mark. And we always, uh, I have to, on the break, get to the microband trivia question for those of you out there waiting for that. I hope, Cliff, you still have time to stick with us for another five minutes. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not going anywhere. Great. And before we let you go, Mark, though, we always have the three last questions. Number one, what advice would you give consumers listening to this show with respect to you know whatever area you'd like, asbestos, lead paint, mold? Get yourself educated. I mean, if you're a worker, if you're a homeowner hiring a worker uh, or having contract work done, question things. Um, and get yourself educated, not to the point that you can go out and, and conduct it as a business, but certainly so that you can protect your yourself and your family. And, I again, I address that to I don't care if you're a homeowner looking to hire somebody to do some renovation or you're the contractor that's going to or the employee that's going to do the renovation, is you just have to educate yourself to the fact that these hazardous materials are out there and, uh, you know, mold, you can come across uh, mold, when it isn't a huge water damage, it can simply be a basement in Michigan. Um, just get yourself educated so you can protect yourself and, again, your family. And I would add, just from my own personal perspective, to try and focus on the government sites like the EPA.gov or CDC or OSHA and then some of the reputable association sites and be careful about the toxic black mold of death sites. Uh, if you see those, you may want to uh, be a little careful on those. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a real good addition to what I said. Uh, I said get edu educated, but I didn't. I left out what would be a good way to do that. And uh, I would wholeheartedly agree that the uh, the federal government has great sites. Your state does, and and uh, there's some great associations out there. Uh, I certainly believe the Indoor Air Quality Association insofar as uh, uh, an air quality issue goes, is a, is a great source for uh, getting this knowledge. And also, we also like to make sure that uh, before we go, we allow you an opportunity to add anything that maybe we missed or that uh, you feel is of particular importance that you'd like to get out to our listeners. Well, um, I could go on for hours with regards <laughs> to... Uh, some of that, so I, I guess there isn't anything I can think of right away except to tell you I appreciate you inviting me to be on the show. Well, thank you, Mark, and before you go, could you tell our listeners how they would contact you and or your company? Yeah, probably the easiest way uh, to do it is uh, the infamous internet and, and website. Um, our website is uh, delisleassociatesltd.net. That's D-E-L-I-S-L-E? -E. That is correct. AssociatesLTD.net. That is correct. Excellent, Mark. Well, we have uh, had to skip about eight or ten questions here, so I hope we can have you on down the road maybe uh, in the future. And I really want to thank you for joining us here at IAQ Radio today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Joe. Okay. Thanks.
Cliff, uh, before we go any further, first let me just once again thank our sponsors from today. That would be DryEase, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dry-eaz.com. And, of course, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. And next, we would like to go to our microband trivia question of the week. Cliff, I know you've got some interesting news on this. Microband trivia question is sponsored by microbandsystems.com. You can find out more information about microband systems at microbandsystems.com. Cliff, let's turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Let me know. There's a lot of traffic here, so let me know if there's too much background. and Let me know if you can hear me all right. Sounds well, pretty we good know that, so far. We know that coal mining is a big industry in West Virginia, and I think uh, someone by the name of David Bailey from Williamstown, West Virginia, must have been into trivia mining because he found the answer to the infamous Stachybotrys question. Uh, we were looking for the Latin derivation of Stachybotrys, and the correct answer was grapes on a stick, and he found it uh, by doing research on uh, Nick- Nicholas Money's book on the Internet, and that's where he found the answer. So congratulations to Dave. Now, that's his third correct answer, and now he's going to be in the finals for trivia as well. Uh, I've got a couple of questions we'd like to put in play this week. Uh, One is a scientific question. What experience has been proven to literally knock your socks off? We'd like to know. This is scientifically proven to knock a person's socks off. We want to know what that is. What experience? Okay, I'm sorry. That that one knocked my socks off there for a moment, Cliff. Uh, we'll see if they can find that one. I had to look pretty deep to find it. I'd like to put uh, a disaster restoration question in play that I learned uh, at the ASCAR uh, meeting that uh, Harry and I have been attending for the past couple of days. Which two fire-related chemical contaminants cause the most corrosion damage to metal? Could you repeat that again, please? Which two fire-related chemical contaminants cause the most corrosion damage to metal? That should be an interesting question. And was there another one that we had last week that was answered rather quickly, Cliff? Um, we had one. On the, uh, the, ins- the insect question? Yes. Uh, we Last week, we were the answer f- was carpenter bee. And it was about an insect that uh, bored perfectly circular holes and then uh, went to an abrupt 90-degree angle. So we had, uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think, Chad got that within seconds of it being posted. Oh, he that's right. He answered on the air last right, week through yeah. the uh, texting in. That yeah, was actually, he nailed it. And then uh, David went and did his research and looked at some old shows and found the grapes on a stick. Uh, grapes been on a, stick. a lot of people have been uh, asking me what that answer was, and I, I kept very quiet about that one. Right. That, was a, that was a good one, Cliff. Well, while we have you, um, and I don't want to... Um, hold off too long because we do have another guest on the line, but can you give us a quick highlight on the uh, Ascar, or do you want to wait until after our next guest? Well, it doesn't matter. I can give it to you now. Uh, Harry and I uh, attended the ASCR Environmental and Restoration Conference and Expo. It actually runs November 1st through the 4th. We had to leave early so I could get back and 
you know, I could do this show and, and get back to Pittsburgh. Uh, very well done. They had two different tracks. One was on environmental. The other one was on restoration. Uh, tremendous. Uh, you know, I think the booths were very well attended, probably about 250 uh, registrants. Uh, people seem to be very happy, very, very upbeat. The interesting point for those people that are in disaster restoration, Richard or Dr. Richard Shaughnessy, uh, that many may know from the University of Tulsa, is probably the premier international expert on ozone. And he gave uh, a very important presentation to the ASCAR membership on the use of ozone for remediation. And the bottom line is he's going to be publishing a paper later this year that says it is just not recommended. Interesting. And I think the state of California has already, uh, actually they're looking at legislation on uh, ozone creating air cleaners. Right. And they're going to legislate those. So that is uh, interesting news. Anything else from ASCAR that we should uh, quickly tell our listeners, or do you want to wait until next week for that? No, I think we can talk more about it next week. Well, let's get around to Scott. Great. Well, our next guest is Mr. Stephen Scott Brown of House Masters. He's an inspector, trainer, home inspector. His uh, group has, he's been with Housemasters since 2000. He's a state certified radon and pest inspector. Also an ASHI member. I believe that's the American Society of Home Inspectors, but I'm sure Scott will correct me if I'm wrong. And he's been uh, certified by the NIBI as an inspector since 2000. Also a member of NACHI. And... I think the most interesting part of his uh, bio here is that he was awarded the National Home Inspector of the Year Award in 2004. And um, he goes on to tell us that he performs about 450 home inspections annually and does quite a bit on with respect to seminars for real estate offices, local home inspector organizations, and talks about what's called EFS. EIFS, which I'm sure we'll go into more detail on in a moment, and water intrusion. Welcome, Scott. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Hey, Great. Scott. Thanks for being on. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, absolutely. I know, Cliff, you had a few questions. Did you want to start? Or? Oh, sure. Abs- abs- absolutely. Uh, Scott, my first question for you is how can a thorough home inspection prevent the buyer from getting the seller's existing indoor air quality problems? I think the best way to answer your question is um, comfort level, comma, training of the home inspector you choose. And what I mean by that is um, industry standards are um, designed to protect the inspector as well as um, set those standards. Um, Thoroughness, that is the absolute answer to your question. It requires a completely thorough inspection. If there's furniture in the way or storage in a basement wall in a conducive area um, and anything can be moved without any damage to the seller's property, then it needs to be looked at. Um, As far as other indoor air qualities, training. Um, Inspectors need to get certifications, go through training classes and seminars so that they can build up their arsenal of what they're looking at. Um, You were speaking about vermiculite earlier. Uh, There are home inspectors out there that don't know what vermiculite is when they see it because they've never been trained on it or seen a picture of it and so forth. Do we have it around Pittsburgh? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially the older communities, uh, Dormont, um, in the city itself, uh, the outlying areas. Usually, any house between you know the 20s and the 60s, even the 70s, has vermiculite in it. Scott, what is something called EFIS? E F I S. What is it? Why is it problematic? And can these situations where it's installed be remedied? Okay, EFIS is a. Uh, it, it stands for Exterior Insulated Finish Systems. Um, the most common name people address it as is drive it. Um, drive it is just one of the manufacturers out of 11. It's kind of like calling a facial tissue Kleenex. It's just a standard term. Um, it's basically an acrylic product that's uh, five parts. Um, and if any of your listeners don't know what it is, just drive to your local Arby's. What's on the outside of that Arby's is Eve's. Um, it's a very cosmetically pleasing siding because there are very few joints. It's very, very flat. It can be in any color. Um, it's an acrylic product um, based on stucco design. Of course, stucco is a cementuous product. Uh, EFS is a non-cementuous product, um, which means there's a lot less aggregate in it. It's a lot easier to apply. As far as is it problematic? Yes, absolutely. Um, now, let me qualify that. The materials are not problematic. The installation is problematic. Uh, lack of training, again, training. Um, I love hearing that word. Uh, and some contractors, and you know the contractors as well as I do, think they know a better way than the manufacturer because they've been doing it wrong for so long. It's just how they do things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I run into contractors all the time. Says, "Well, I've been installing this stuff for 20 years, and I've always done it this way." Never in the direction. Yeah, that scares me when they say stuff like that. Can this uh, stuff be fixed? Absolutely, absolutely. One of the uh, issues when it comes to EFS is uh, when water gets in, it has a very, very difficult time getting out because of the construction over top of your sheathing. A, uh, a uh, insulation board, it's called EPS board, is put on. It's basically a closed cell foam. Um, and then you have an acrylic non with base coat, fiberglass mesh, and then the finish coat. Those products, when water gets behind them, will not allow the water to escape properly. Now, that means the water only has one way to go, and that's inside, whether it's on a horizontal plane or whether the, just the house pressures are actually sucking the moisture through. Um, can it be fixed? Absolutely. I've never seen a property that could not be fixed. Obviously, some more invasive than others. And that's why a, um, a thorough investigation in water intrusion is very important because a water intrusion will tell the contractor if there's sheathing damage behind uh, the wet areas so that he can base his bid of remediation on that sheathing damage. Um, so. And I, I say this not because I'm uh, a certified inspector for EATS, but uh, every property that has EATS on it should be inspected, especially in a real estate transaction, because going back to one of your previous comments, you don't want to inherit that seller's problem. Now, it can be very a, a very expensive remediation. So this, I'm curious, Scott, um, there was a website, I, I, I am pretty sure it's still around. It's called www.stuccosettlement.com. Yes, sir. Is that still 
around and up. Uh, we just my cyberzock jockey just pulled it up and it says it's not up anymore here. That's correct. The dry, it, that was a class action lawsuit against one one manufacturer. Right. Um, years ago, the manufacturer happened to be Drive It. Now that class action settlement expired. So any of those excuse me homes which were 90% in North Carolina uh, had until that class action settlement expired to get those things fixed. Now, when the class action settlement was uh, founded, the manufacturer was blamed for the problems. Further investigation over the years has proven that the installation was the problem, not the product. Well, they're not going to be refunding any money, I don't think. No, I doubt that. <laughs> no. Cliff, you, if you have one more, we're starting to get a little more uh, background noise there from the airport. Do you? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, what I'd like to do is know whether or not there, or know what the most common causes of water intrusions were and whether there were any inexpensive fixes for these and what a French drain will and won't do. Oh, wow, you're going to get me in trouble with a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> common causes of water intrusion. Believe it or not, Cliff, residentially and even commercially, the number one and number two, which are kind of in conjunction sources of water intrusion, are gutters and downspouts and ground slope. And those are two very simple methods of repair that will fix 90% of the water intrusion into subgrade areas, basements and garages. Uh, ground slope obviously needs to slope away from the house, negative grade, and the soil should be compacted. You shouldn't just throw topsoil up against your house and expect it to do anything other than uh, get washed away, washed away um, with rain because uh, soft soil will not stop water from intruding. Dense soil will. Um, and then obviously gutters and downspouts. Uh, both of those are actually part of your foundation. They're not part of your roof. They're meant to take water away from the foundation. Your roof can uh, operate without gutters and downspouts, but everything that falls off your roof is hitting the outside walls of your foundation. Um, so those are the two most problematic areas. Every now and then there will be a high water table or a hidden estuary or something like that, but that is very, very rare. Thank you. Parley Vu, French drains? Uh, I speak it. I try not to. <laughs> um, Cliff, we're going to mute you for just a moment, if you don't mind. That way we can hear the answer a little better. This, this is the one that's going to really get me in trouble. Uh, <clears throat> I think French drains are a good thing to have in a house. However, I don't think they fix anything. Now, let me qualify that. Um, French drains typically still allow water into the basement. Then they will take those drains or that water out of the basement. Now, the problem I have with that is uh, you're not stopping the water. We don't live in caves anymore. We should be able to keep the water on the outside of the house. Uh, French drains, uh, they clog, they get crushed. Um, animals like them. Um, and they're still allowing, like I said, that moisture intrusion into the basement, although it's getting rid of it it's still allowing that moisture intrusion. That's still going to cause a couple of concerns. Humidity levels in the basement rise because that water is still coming in. And uh, the block above those French drain tiles uh, are still getting wet. And obviously we know when block gets wet, there's a potential for mold. 
Um, I've seen humidity in basements rise so much, even with the French drain, that the floor joists end up with all the moisture and the humidity, and that's where you see your visible mold, um, even though you may not see any on the wall. I think the best French drain to have in a house with a sump pump is a sump pump that is completely dry year-round, normal humidity levels, and uh, your drain has not operated since the day you put it in because that means you fix the things on the outside properly. Cliff, we're back on. Are you, you Those are some good points, Judd. I think you have some questions for Scott, don't you? I do. I do. I appreciate the, the thoughts on French trains. We could probably talk about that for another half an hour, but I, I had a couple quick questions as far as home inspectors and licensing, Scott. What, what type of licensing is required to be a home inspector? Well, unfortunately, very little, sir. Uh, I'll, I'll take Pennsylvania as an example. Um, Pennsylvania doesn't necessarily license their inspectors. They had a trade agree, agreement um, a couple years ago that said inspectors must have a certain, uh, a few certain things. One is obviously insurance. They have to carry um, a certain amount of GL and errors and omissions insurance. Um, and they have to be a member of a national organization. Um, they have to have performed a minimum number of inspections to become part of most organizations. Now, there are some states who actually do license. Uh, I think that is a great idea, and the reason I do is it doesn't take much to become a home inspector, which means there are guys out there who haven't been trained. Um, they may have passed a test, but uh, they're out there doing non-thorough home inspections, and it's kind of like the used car salesman in the plaid jacket with the white shoes. <laughs> they give they give everybody a bad name. Um, I, I I hope someday and someday soon that a true licensing organization will be created in all states. But you know as well as I do, licensing is great, but if there's not a policing agency, um, it's kind of a moot point. So in these states that do license, is there policing as well? No, sir. Interesting. That's the only policing is the other home inspectors who happen to see you uh, performing a home inspection um, either get a copy of your report and can prove to someone that you have actually uh, uh, done something against that licensing policy. Um, but obviously, if you don't have the right insurance anyway, it's going to be really, really hard uh, as far as what type of prosecution is there? Um, no. other, go ahead, sir. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just curious, in states where they do have licensing, is there specific information that has to be reported? Are there specific forms, formats? Um, a couple states. Texas happens to be one of, uh, of, the, of the major ones. That Texas has a, uh, a format that has to be followed, and that's on all real estate home inspections. Um, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not sure if that's commercial and residential, but I do know it is residential. And there are forms specifically for Texas. I've never seen another state that has uh, an actual format that, that has to be followed. Um, now, some states do require certain things be looked at. Southern states require uh, insulation um, be taken into account, uh, the, the size, the depth, uh, the R value of insulation obviously because of the, uh, the lack of any temperature differentials year-round, um, and obviously attributing condensation into a house that may not be 
insulated well enough, obviously creating a mold issue. Okay. I um I had a strange situation once. I was doing teaching a class and I had a former home inspector tell me they couldn't take anything out of the home, including an air sample. And this it made me scratch my head. He was from Maryland. Um, I can understand not being allowed to take, say, a bulk sample or a piece of the building material. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Does that make any sense to you? It makes absolutely no sense to me. No, I've never heard of that. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there are, there are some rules when it comes to when a home inspector goes into a house, typically he is there on behalf of the buyer, which means um, it's not the buyer's house yet. And, I mean, you, you obviously have to respect the house. But I've never heard about an air sample being uh, not allowed uh, by any organization, let alone uh, the industry, uh, especially an air sample. Uh, you know, a swab, uh, I can't understand why a swab couldn't be taken in any home let alone uh, an air sample. Was he breathing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess that's the <laughs> question I should have asked. But Yeah, and what if he needed to take a water sample too, guys? Um, would yes. he have been allowed to do that, you know, for potability or, or any other samples for a lab? Is that typically a part of your typical home inspection? Do you take a water sample? Um, it's one of our ancillary services that we provide. Um, typically, we'll only do that on, a obviously, a house with a well. Um, because, as you know, uh, any municipality has to uh, give anybody who wants it, basically, any uh, the, the, the local testing on the water. But, yeah, we do, uh, we do quite a bit. And, obviously, up, um, Cliff, you're familiar with, like, Butler County and Washington County, the, the more rural areas that have wells. Yes, we do uh, potability. Every now and then we'll do lead, and we even do uh, uh, one of the major parameters um, sampling. I uh, also was curious to, uh, actually, when you mentioned earlier, moving furniture to, for instance, look to see if maybe somebody was trying to cover up the entry to a sump pump for an interior drain. Is that allowable, or it sounds to me like you think, or you have done that, and that is allowable. I've heard that they weren't allowed to do that. Well, the industry standards lay out what the industry says we're expected to do, and then obviously what we're not expected to do. <clears throat> One of those is the inspector is not expected to move furniture, ceiling tiles, and so forth. Now, I'm a firm believer that if I can move something without any damage to it, uh, without disturbing anything around it, that I'm not giving my buyer a thorough inspection if I don't look behind that couch or look... Uh, up in the ceiling tile. And obviously I'm not moving every ceiling tile in the house. I'm looking at the, the areas that are conducive for water penetration specifically under the front door, under the patio door, uh, adjacent to a deck, uh, things like that. Obviously, no, you don't want to cut holes in drywall to look for moisture or termites. Um, when you're looking for wood-destroying insects, you shouldn't be poking holes in walls either. Uh, but as far as moving furniture, yeah, I think you're doing a disservice if you can move it um, not to do it. Now, saying that, if it's glass, no, don't move it. Not if there's any, uh, you know, bearing on breaking it. I tend not to move antiques. Uh, if the seller's present, I'll ask them to move it for me, and I've never had a seller tell me no. I see. What about entryways into crawl spaces? I know they're not a big, 
you know, we don't have a lot of crawl spaces in this area, but I assume you talk to other inspectors and you've had situations where you had to or you wanted to gain entry to a crawl space. What if it's uh, difficult to get entry or you, you can't find an entryway? How do you handle that as a home inspector? Well, if, 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 if access can't be gained, obviously you have to report that. Yes, there's a crawl space. It's at the, you know, wherever, rear of the house under the addition. There was no access, and it would behoove you to say, uh, unable to evaluate any elements in the crawl space based on lack of access. Now, me personally, if I can get my shoulders through the hole, I'm going in. Okay. Now, usually going in is not my concern. Getting out is more of a concern. <laughs> um, and, I mean, we wear Tyvek suits, so we're not walking around dirty all day because, I mean, crawl spaces are important, as you know, for water penetration um, and moisture dissipation in the framing uh, and insulation and so forth. And uh, a lot of times water lines that are run through crawl spaces aren't protected from the, uh, from the cold temperatures with insulation or so forth. Now, what would be the most unusual thing that happened to you or that you found during a home inspection? I'm sure you've got quite a few interesting Oh, wow. <laughs> We've talked for days. Um, well, I'll give you two real real quick. Uh, you, you're, you're familiar with Fox Chapel. Fox Chapel happens to be um, a very prominent community. I was in a million-dollar house, and when I was in the basement, uh, after I found mold everywhere, uh, I looked up in one of the clear panels in the, uh, in the ceiling, there's a drop ceiling in the clear light panels, and I saw a big snake skin. And then I started looking around a little more, and I saw hundreds of snake skins. Wow. I couldn't find a live snake, though. Uh, I was almost done with the inspection, and I got up into the master bathroom, pulled the cover off the jacuzzi tub um, for the plumbing access, and there was a mound of snakes in there about two foot high, about two foot wide. Just hundreds of black snakes. They were all about a foot long. I reached in, and the mother, who happened to be about six and a half feet long, wasn't real happy, and she came at me. Um, <laughs> so snakes are fun. I, I, snakes don't bother me. But probably the most, what I'm most famous for is I found a home, and I'll be careful how I say this, that had a lot of, uh, uh, wow, <laughs> terrorist organization information. And uh, I, don't, I still don't know what's going on with that house. But I, I, I know that uh, uh, the FBI is investigating it. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm also, I had a question on um, something called the Clue Report. I, oh, yes, sir. I don't know if we had a chance to, do you have a moment to discuss that? And, and oh, absolutely, sir. Give our listeners a little warning about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. Clue is, uh, I guess the best way to explain it from a, a, a homeowner 101, Clue is a credit report except on your past insurance history. Um, it's basically in a loss underwriting exchange, and it's created by an insurance company that when a claim is uh, on your name, not necessarily your property, but your name, uh, it goes into a, a database basically. Um, policy numbers, date of birth, all kinds of claim information. And uh, this basically stays in there, and it's a maximum of 
uh, five years. It can't be on there for more than five years. If it is, you've got to write just like a credit report to have it taken off of there. Um, there isn't really any uh, anything on the report except like a, a, a loss history. Uh, if you have a big water leak uh, on the second floor, basically everything that was uh, damaged below it is on it, not necessarily monetary uh, values. And these stay on your report for what? What's the reason? I mean, why why do they have these on this report? Are they looking to uh, blackball certain people or properties or? Well, blackball is a harsh word. Let's yeah. use let's let's use the word blackball. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I I honestly believe that. I think insurance companies are are blackballing certain people. I I know clients have told me on site before that. Uh, they had a loss, you know, two or three years ago at a home. Now they're buying a home, and it's hard for them to get uh, homeowner's insurance because they are on that list. And most insurance company will pull up that list with your name and your information to see if you have had a loss. And blackball is the right word. It really is. I, there's no other word that could explain it any better. And this is on the individuals again, not the property itself. So there's that, no. That's correct. That's now the, the address is on there. Is on the clear report, but this is actually this actually follows the individual. Um, it doesn't stay with the house. It actually follows the individual. But I would assume that if insurance companies wanted to, they could also determine whether or not a specific property had a history of water damage or whatever. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, like I said, that is on the uh, the clear report. Um, you could well let me let me back up. You if you're buying a house, Cliff, you cannot access the clue report on a specific property. Only the seller or the owner of that house can do that and the insurance companies. So if you want to buy a house at 123 Main Street, you can't pull up a clue report on it. Um, but once you own the house, you could, kind of late. You know, that's why the clue report really doesn't help a homeowner as far as I'm concerned. It helps the insurance companies. So it's there for the insurance companies to yes. keep an eye on maybe shady people uh, or maybe not shady people. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, you know, obviously if you, if you move you know, 10 times in 20 years and every time you've got a, uh, a, a loss uh, due to plumbing leaks or, you know, water tank explosions or whatever, you know, that, that kind of says a little more about you than it does, you know, the house, the house that you keep buying. I see. I see. Cliff, are you still with us there? Yeah, I'm still here, Joe. Okay, I just wanted to let you know we unmuted you, um, and it sounds like uh, the airport slowed down a little bit. Or you... uh, it's it's kind of hard to tell. Okay. Well, that was uh, interesting. And, and how do you get uh, – could you review again how you get access to this clue report and then maybe get your name cleared in some way? Is that possible, Scott? Absolutely. Um, honestly, the best way to uh... – to, to, to access it is, uh, um, believe it or not, do a search engine on Clue Report. Um, the Clue Report is part of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, the uh, uh, organization called Chase Point is um, one of the leaders in providing the, the Clue Report um, for insurance companies. Um, the best way uh, to actually access it, like I said, is either go to uh, just Clue Reports or uh, contact the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Now, there is a uh, – every state has an uh, Office of the Commissioner of Insurance, 
that's probably a way that people locally could find it as well. Um, probably easier, like I said, to go to the internet, find your local office or your local commissioner, and then contact them either obviously by phone or internet. And you can then object to whatever information is on there if you feel it's inaccurate or misrepresenting what happened. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Kind of like, like I said, like you do to a, uh, a credit report. Um, if there's any erroneous uh, information, um, you basically call Choice Point and uh, report the problem. And I think they have 30 days by law to uh, follow up. Um, and if there is no response um, within, I believe, 30 days, then it has to be removed based on federal law. Now, I, I also wanted to, before we get to our final three questions, ask this question and and I'm I'm starting to get the impression that it really will vary by state and also by what association the home inspector is a part of but what types of issues are home inspectors not supposed to comment on or investigate um, industry standard I'd say the number one is industry, industry standards say uh, environmental hazards I would say but have to be number one uh, we're not required to point out environmental hazards. Seems weird, but we're not. Now, a thorough home inspection should at least include the potential for an environmental hazard. Let me explain. You got a visible mold type substance in your basement? <clears throat> I better point it out. Okay. Uh, you guys were talking about vermiculite earlier. Again, an environmental hazard, potentially, um, if you see vermiculite in an attic, you should point it out. Because once the homeowner owns it and Cousin Joe goes up there and says, hey, did you know you have uh, vermiculite in your attic? Well, you're getting a phone call. Um, and obviously the same thing with mold. Um, I've been in houses that uh, had methane gas. You know, I thought I had a gas leak, but the entire house was just filled with methane gas. Um, once again, industry standards say I don't have to point that out, but, you know, the homeowner's smoking on the toilet one day, flushes it, you know, mm -hmm. Probably not going to get a phone call on that one. <laughs> Maybe from the uh, from the survivors. Uh, exactly. Attorney. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's uh, that's a new one. I I didn't realize. So you you want to point these things out, but in essence, you're not supposed to go into detail. I guess, however, some in home inspectors do. Yeah, I, mean, I think an inspection should be based on your knowledge of certain things. Obviously, as a water intrusion analyst, um, I may be able to point out water uh, a lot more readily and safely than some home inspectors. Uh, some home inspectors, when they see uh, EFs, like we were talking about earlier, uh, won't say anything about it because they're afraid to. Um, they've heard about it. They know it's problems. And they figure, well, if I point it out and there's a problem with it, I'm getting sued. Well, I'm on the other side of the fence that says, <clears throat> if you know about it, point it out. If you're not qualified to say what's wrong with it, recommend uh, a professional in, in, in that industry to take a look at it. Uh, that is not only protecting your client, but it's protecting yourself as well. We're seeing a lot of that in the, in the mold remediation and investigation industry. Home inspectors are pointing out that there's something that, appears to be mold. In some cases, they're taking training courses and actually adding as an additional service the 
um, verification of the existence of mold, they don't really generally go into more than just verifying there is mold and then bring in a third party to look at that. Do you recommend that home inspectors do that, or do you try to stay away from it yourself? No, I, I try not to stay away from it. Again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying to be as thorough as possible. Uh, I I think every home inspector should be trained uh, at least slightly in understanding mold and identifying uh, not only conducive conditions but uh, colorations on mold. I, I think seminars are, are great. Certifications, uh, yes, I'm a firm believer in that. Um, now, in our industry, and this varies by state again, the, the, the thing that goes back to uh, home inspectors um, investigating, taking samples of mold, uh, should be determined by two things, your comfort level with that inspector, uh, uh, comma, his training. More importantly, is he insured to do it? A lot of home inspectors aren't insured for what are considered ancillary services, meaning mold testing, uh, uh, radon, well and septic. If he's not insured to do a mold test, um, I would recommend you get a third party in there. I understand. That's excellent advice for our listeners. And before we go, we certainly always like to um, ask if there's anything that we missed that you would like to add. Um, no, I, I think you guys asked some great questions. Um, I guess the only question I was at, would ask was, uh, how's Zach's house? <laughs> well, it seems to be working out very well. Thank you. Great. And not only is he a cyber jockey, he's a client. Cyber jockey, That's right. Client, and uh, he's mentioned something about bats somewhere. I don't yeah. Know exactly yeah. Exactly. Was. You. Uh, it's probably not. It's probably not one of the more unusual things that you've seen. But um, he, Scott here, found bats. Dead bats in my electronic air cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> during d during his inspection of of the property. That's correct. Yeah. Um, bats <laughs> are a lot more common than people think. They really are. Matter of fact, I was just in an attic that had about uh, probably 15 of them hanging from the rafters. Uh, <laughs> wow. And I don't disturb bats. I kind of leave them alone. Uh, and um, I will give our consumers a tip: don't disturb bat feces uh, yes. without the proper Fair. protection Speak and engineering yes. rules. Speaking of uh, environmental hazards, yeah, guano is very, very uh, bad for humans. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Scott. Well, we would uh, really like to thank you very much for being a part of IAQ Radio. And if you would, could you tell our listeners how to contact you if, um, if, if you're interested in having them contact you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, our national website is obviously on the web, www.housemaster.com, and that is housemaster, singular. And locally, our email address is uh, SWPA, Southwestern Pennsylvania, SWPA, at housemaster.com. I'm writing as we speak here, housemaster.com. So that's SWPA, like Southwestern Pennsylvania. Correct. At housemaster.com. And thank you once again, Scott, for coming ben in and joining us. It's we'll, been a pleasure. I'm sure we will uh, be calling on your expertise again sometime down the road, if you don't mind. I do not mind. I, Like I said, it's a, been a very, very pleasurable experience. Well, thanks again for joining us. Cliff, anything you wanted to add? 
No, no, I'm signing off from Denver. I'm going to go run and catch a plane. All right, Cliff signing off from Denver. Scott signing off here from Pittsburgh. This is Joe Hughes and Cyber Jockey here at the studio. And uh, we would just like to say thanks to our sponsors once again, DryEase at uh, dryease.com and Indoor Environment Connections at ieconnections.com. Of course, thanks to our two guests today, Mark DeLau and Scott Brown. And lastly, uh, we would also like to remind our listeners that IAQ Radio training programs are now approved for certification renewal with the American Indoor Air Quality Council. For more information, you can email me at joe.hughes, at iaqtraining.com or you can email info at iaqtraining.com. And we also now have a link to the show page. And very soon we'll have some new advertisers up on the show page. We have uh, worked out a deal here with the TalkShoe folks, so we won't have those Google ads that drive us a little bit crazy going up and down our page there. We will have our um, dryees and uh, the IE Connections folks and the John Don folks, and we're hoping to add the Aerotech P&K folks here. We had a talk with them recently. So if anybody else out there is interested in putting an advertisement up on our homepage, please email me about that. This is Joe Hughes saying thank you to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, our technical assistant, Cyber Jockey, CJ, Zach Slotnick, and most importantly, to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. We really appreciate your feedback, and please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.